0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, April 14th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include The people who brought you DuckDuckGo are beta testing a security and privacy centric web browser. Does the world need a new web browser? Google Play will be deprecating apps that aren't getting updated by their developers. Why doesn't Apple do that? And an overview of how to manage and use your Apple ID, your special key to Apple products and services. Now, here are the hosts of the Indigo Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Indigo's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: Good morning, Josh, how are you today? I'm doing well, how are you, Kirk? I'm doing quite well. I think we're going to do a weekly checkup to find out if macOS Big Sur and Catalina have been updated for the bugs that you talked about
2: two weeks ago. Have they been updated yet? No. Okay. We need to get one of those websites. The domain is just, has Big Sur been updated yet? Yes. And <laughs> We can just have a big no. And and remember, these were actively exploited vulnerabilities. We know that one of them for sure affects macOS Big Sur, and the other one very likely affects both Big Sur and Catalina. So if you're on one of those operating systems, there's actively exploited vulnerabilities that have been patched from Monterey for two weeks now that you still haven't gotten. So you might want to upgrade to macOS Monterey. I'll put a link in the show notes
1: to an article that you wrote two weeks ago, two whole weeks ago, and that still hasn't been updated.
2: Okay, if DuckDuckGo came out with a browser for Mac, would you use it? Um, Maybe. I mean, like, I already feel like we have Brave, which is a a pretty good, uh, you know, privacy-focused browser. But uh, that could be kind of interesting to have another competitor in that space. Well, that's good timing because
1: they've just launched a beta of their browser for Mac. You knew that I was... Leading into that, of course. They say it's really fast. They say it uses 60% less data than Chrome. It's faster than Chrome in some graphics performance tests. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you felt that your browser was too slow?
2: Um. Yeah, it's not really something that I think of very often. I mean, really, we've got such fast computers these days that, you know... Browser speeds are not really that noticeable usually. It's more your connection speed that's noticeable, right? If you're using a slow network, you know, somebody's Wi-Fi is really bad, then yeah, you'll really notice a difference, but not so much because of the browser.
1: I wonder why companies still talk about the speed of browsers, and Apple is, but they haven't done it for a while, but they used to compare Safari much this much faster than this, et cetera, because it really doesn't mean that much anymore. Now, they do say it uses less data, and this could be useful if you're on a laptop. Uh, tethering to your iPhone and you want to use less data. So that's pretty practical. I would think the main thing about a browser is power. So people on laptops don't use up their battery as much. But again, the battery life on M1 laptops is so good that I think this isn't even an issue anymore.
2: Yeah. Well, the using less data is actually one of Brave browser's claims to fame too, because uh, that's one of the things they do is they block a lot of content by default. So it does sound like there's a lot of similarities between these browsers. I guess the perspective of DuckDuckGo starting as a search engine and then moving into a browser and Brave kind of doing the opposite, starting out as a browser and now also having a search engine that they run. It depends on which one you prefer using and, and you know, if there are some differences in features, um, you can, now you've got a couple of options. At least DuckDuckGo is still in beta, but um, they do have a Mac version now, which is cool. Okay. You know that when you've got an Apple device, like an iPhone,
1: and you turn on Find My iPhone, that this is something that you have to manually turn off. So let's say you sell it or you give it away so someone else can sign in with their Apple ID. Recently, Apple has extended this to certain AirPods model. And there seems to be a problem with this because there are companies that refurbish and recycle devices, and they're getting AirPods to refurbish, and people aren't removing those AirPods from the Find My network. And they are locked. And I kind of like, I like the idea of the find my for AirPods because that's something you can lose really easily, right? But making a user have to remember to do this seems a bit problematic. And here, of course, it's it's turning out that some of these recyclers don't even want to use AirPods. One of them says about eight in 10 AirPods that come through the company's
2: six facilities are locked and they can't recycle them. Oh, well, that's weird. When you say they can't recycle them, you just mean that they can't refurbish and reissue them to another user, right? Right, because they, they have an activation lock, so you
1: can't use them if they're registered to a different user. Every time I sell an iPhone or another device, there are a couple different companies I've used here in the UK, and there's always a big warning, make sure you remove it from your iCloud account. And I, I guess the AirPods is something
2: that is people aren't really thinking of in the same way. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, that wouldn't cross my mind. That, that is really interesting, Again, I agree with you that I I like the idea that you can track down missing AirPods and you certainly want to have that capability especially because they're so small they can get lost in a couch cushion or any other small place where you wouldn't necessarily easily be able to find them so it makes sense to have find my for that product but at the same time it's not it's not a product that has like buttons on it right <laughs> like there's there's no screen on it so you don't think that about it being something that you need to change something if you're going to sell it it just seems like a, like a typical product. Any other headphones in the history of the world, if you wanted to resell it, you, you just sold it.
1: Well, I just opened up the find my app on my Mac and I see my AirPods and I see my AirPods Max. But if I go into system preferences, so if you go to system preferences and you click on Apple ID, you'll see all your devices, but you won't see those devices there you'll have to go onto Apple's website to be able to remove these devices. And that's a little bit confusing that they're available in one interface and not another. Okay, so Google has done something interesting with apps on its Google Play Store. They are making outdated apps less accessible. And I wish Apple would do this. You know, we've talked what was it, December 2020 when Apple rolled out what they call those nutrition labels for privacy for apps. And if you updated an app after that date, you had to provide the information. And so a lot of developers just aren't updating apps to not provide the information. So these may be apps that are nearly a year and a half without updates because the developers don't want to tell you how much information they collect. And Google is doing this quite well. They're deprecating apps that aren't updated. And I think Apple should have a thing where apps that are too old should not come up in search. Now, there are some cases where developers pull apps from the app store. In other words, they're no longer actively selling them, but you can find them in your purchase list. But I I really find it annoying when I'm looking for an app for a specific thing. And
2: I look when it was last updated five years ago. I don't want to download an app that's that old. Right, there's a number of potential problems if an app is that old. For, For one thing... Like you said, you you don't have any idea what the privacy policy is necessarily. Now, sometimes developers will still have a privacy policy available, but not necessarily – they're not required to have the nutrition labels yet. And and if it hasn't been updated in that long, chances are they're, they're not going to have nutrition labels. So that's one thing. But then there's also other things too. Um, in some cases, if an app is old enough – It might. I've even seen apps before where I downloaded it, and it's very clear that it's not designed for the current display size of an iPhone, right? If an app hasn't been updated for many years, it might not even really look right on your phone. It might be designed for the older, smaller iPhone screens. Occasionally, I still see
1: apps that have that skeuomorphic layout from iOS 6. So iOS 7 is when Apple went
2: from the skeuomorphic to the
1: flat layout, and I still
2: see apps like like that with the old screens. Yeah, exactly. And there's so, so there's a lot of like things that might be visually jarring as well. It's just it may not be a very good user experience if it's something that hasn't been updated for many years. So I see this also with podcasts. You know, most podcasts,
1: someone makes three or four episodes and then stops. You're going to do some searching and you're going to find these podcasts. Hundreds of them are going to show up. Look at look for music or books, lots of categories like that and And I think Apple should do something about that. They should deprecate them. they should maybe not display them. Now the problem is you could have podcasts that do a season right a twelve episode podcast season that's meant to be a one off so you don't want that to disappear. It's kind of a hard decision because do you want to count all podcasts as being older than a certain age as no longer valid? Or do you want to
2: maintain this massive library of aborted podcasts? Well, I think this is a little bit different issue from App Store apps, right? And by the way, there's different ways that Apple could handle this. They could have... Apps or podcasts that haven't been updated for a long time maybe rank lower in the search results. Maybe they can tweak the algorithm so that they don't show up quite as high on the list. On apps, if you've previously purchased it or previously downloaded a free app, you should still be able to easily find an app that you've previously downloaded. That's something that I think uh, shouldn't go away, even if they do decide to remove it from the store. However, on podcasts, that that gets a little bit trickier. Typically, you don't have a podcast every episode of a podcast downloaded, right? And there are some podcasts, like you say, that depending on the content, like if they're not newsy at all, if if it's like you say, a book is one example, there might be a number of like educational type podcasts where they don't necessarily need to be updating it all that often. But the there are some things I think that they could do a lot better. I've actually encountered podcasts in the store before where every single episode of the podcast was no longer available. If you tried to play any episode in the list, it would... Uh, say that it couldn't find it or something like that. It was basically giving you a human version of the not found browser error that they were probably getting behind the scenes. So there's an article on ZDNet or ZDNet, as they would say over here, why quickly
1: patching your iPhones and Macs is more important than ever. And that's kind of interesting because we say that all the time that you should quickly patch your iPhones and Macs. And particularly recently, we talked about the fact that they can take one to four weeks to roll out iOS updates to devices that are getting auto updates. And this article points out the number of vulnerabilities that there have been for Apple devices. We were talking before the show. For me, it's the severity of the vulnerabilities that are more important, not just the numbers. What I find interesting is that an article by someone about security is saying you should quickly patch your devices, whereas that's like the
2: standard thing we think about doing. Right. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, we're telling people all the time if you're using an Apple device, make sure it's on the latest operating system, not just one of the previous that's ostensibly still getting some patches, right? So the the, the point of this article is, hey, Apple's been patching a lot more stuff just in the last, you know, in the second half of uh, of 2021 versus the first half, it's like, you know, something like 4.6 times as many vulnerabilities were patched during the second half of last year. So I agree with you. I think it's more important to look at the severity and also which ones are actively exploited things that are in the wild that are likely to affect you versus, um, you know, maybe more difficult to pull off or not, not as a uh, big of a deal necessarily. It's an interesting article. So we'll link to it in the show notes. But again, the most important takeaway here is stay on the latest Apple operating system and on iOS and iPadOS in particular, make sure that you manually check for updates as soon as you hear that there's a new iOS or iPadOS update available because it might take weeks for you to get it otherwise. Okay, a quick note about Microsoft's huge patch Tuesday.
1: Now, we're not a Windows podcast, but we may have some users who are using Windows on their Macs in bootcamp, in VMware parallels, depending on which version of the operating system. We'll link to an article in the register, 100 plus vulnerabilities, 10 critical RCEs. Upgrade your Windows as soon as you
2: can. RCEs is remote code execution vulnerabilities. And also there was one vulnerability that is being actively exploited. So you definitely want to make sure you're patching.
1: Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to manage your Apple ID and more.
0: Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Indigo's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. NetBarrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware. And much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today. When you're ready to buy, Indigo Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com, And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Indigo Mac Podcast listeners. Indigo, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts.
1: Okay, this is the kind of story that I like to hear. This is what I want to hear in podcast, that critical vulnerabilities were uncovered in hospital robots. And this is like, I'm thinking, you know, cyberpunk and William Gibson and Blade Runner and stuff. And these aren't robots who are going to operate on you, right? That's a different kind of thing. These are little robots. You know those little, we don't have them over here, but sometimes I see pictures in California. You have little robots that carry packages along the street that look like little dogs with six wheels. They deliver medicine and other supplies. Now imagine that someone takes over one of these robots and puts Novichok into the robot instead of a real medication. And the president is in the hospital with concentric circles of Secret Service and CIA and FBI and police. And the little robot just walks
2: right through because no one's going to bother to check it. This seems pretty serious. Okay, okay. Well, aside from sci-fi scenarios... <laughs> um, and, and these robots, by the way, these are not like you know humanoid androids, you know, walking around and and things like that. These this type of robot, these are called tug robots, and they're basically a tray on wheels. You could kind of look at them like that, like a big Lego car. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like that, I guess. They're fairly large, and and they carry supplies from from one part of the hospital to another. So some vulnerabilities were found, five vulnerabilities were found in these tug robots that could potentially allow attackers to take over a robots activities, including taking photos, snooping on the hospital in real time via camera feeds, accessing patient records, disrupting or blocking drug delivery. So all of these things could, of course, impact patient care, among other things. Um, you can even with the most severe vulnerability, you can hijack user sessions or take control of the robot's movement and crash them into people or objects or even use them to harass patients and staff, they say. <laughs> <laughs> I like that last bit, yeah. But, you know,
1: you said you said leave aside the science fiction, but 20 years ago ransomware would have been considered
2: science fiction, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's certainly not something that we had ever really experienced before at that point in history. So. Yeah. And and these robots
1: didn't we see little tiny robots like that in the Star Wars movie going down through the Death Star, back in the seventies?
2: So yeah, yeah, the little yeah. mouse robots, right? That, that's ex- exactly what I think the tug robots kind of look like, except a lot bigger, obviously. Because they have some actual utility and <laughs> they're carrying supplies and things. But let's scale back the hype a little bit, because it's it's important to realize that when it comes to delivering drugs, it's not taking it off the shelf and then injecting it into a patient, right? There's still a human nurse that is going to be administering the drug, and they're carefully trained in, in making sure that it's the correct drug and and that it's intended for the correct patient and things like that. It's possible that you could, uh, you know, hijack one of these robots and have it intentionally deliver the medication to the wrong place. But it's, you've still got that human check that you've got to get through if you want to get somebody. Yeah, but, okay, I'm not a doctor, but I've seen
1: lots of medical TV shows. And you've got that code red stat, and everyone's panicking, and the robot's there, and they're looking, we've got to find this drug. And the robot opens the drawer, and there it is, and boom. So... All of this is possible. I mean, it does sound ridiculous, but so did ransomware a few decades ago. We want to talk this week about how to manage your Apple ID. And the Apple ID is one of these things, You know, as I was writing this article, I was thinking just how important the Apple ID is and you can't do anything without an Apple ID. Now let's say you buy an iPhone and you don't want to use any Apple products or services you still need an Apple ID to sign in to the App Store to download. Let's say you want to just use Google, Gmail and Google Calendar and all that. You still need an Apple ID to sign in to the App Store to do that. You cannot use an Apple device without an Apple ID unless you're using the stock software. Well, I guess you could send SMSs. You could could make phone calls, but you couldn't do email. So any kind of apps you need, you have to have an Apple ID. But the Apple ID does so much. It's for purchasing. It's for your iCloud account where you manage email calendars, contacts. It's for Apple News. It's for stocks. It's for everything. So the Apple ID, it almost
2: makes me think that the Apple ID is doing a bit too much. Yeah, there there definitely seem to be a lot of eggs in one Apple ID basket. There's certainly a lot of, of different things that you can do with an Apple ID. It's It's For a good reason, right? I mean... You don't necessarily want to have to sign into 10,000 things to do 10,000 different things, right? That's that's too much. And so it makes sense to have a lot of this stuff that you're doing on all of your Apple devices centralized and all tied in with one account. Again, it is a single point of failure. That's a potential problem if somehow you lose access to your Apple ID. But it is, it's also very convenient. And and I think for most users in most scenarios, it's that convenience that's going to be your your benefit, and the reason why you want all this stuff tied into one Apple ID. It's also platform lock-in.
1: <laughs> well, If yeah. all of your data depends on one company's identification or authentication
2: system, then it's going to be a lot harder to change to another one, such as Android. I do find it interesting. You mentioned that unless you just want to stick with the stock apps that come on the phone, you need an Apple ID. Just to download free apps, even, you need an Apple ID. Yeah, yeah. So in this article, I discuss how to manage your Apple ID and I look
1: at the appleid.apple.com page, which has been updated in recent months. It used to be a lot messier. It's nice and clean now. I walk through the many things you can do. Now, some of the things have changed. You didn't used to be able to change your Apple ID easily. It was a very complicated process. And now you can just change your Apple ID's email address with a couple of clicks. This is really important to do if you've been using an email address linked to your employment, which you should never do because once you leave the job, you may no longer have access to the email address. Or let's say you have a .edu address when you're in college, you shouldn't do that. At a minimum, get a Gmail address to use for an Apple ID it, it doesn't have to be a iCloud or a Mac address for your Apple ID. but you can do that easily now. in this this article is really a complete guide and I link to other articles we've written about things such as account recovery and legacy contacts. So account recovery is if you basically forget your password, you can't get in. you can have people, authenticate you to get back in. Legacy contact is what happens if you die, who gets your data. There are a whole lot of security features here. We won't remind you that you should have two-factor authentication turned on, but you should have it turned on. If you don't, you can turn it on on this page. You can also change your password. Now there's something interesting that when you look at the password, it tells you the last date you've updated. And this is kind of going back to that old idea we had that you should change your password often, which I think we discussed this recently. So many people, if they change their password, they just add a number at the end you know my password 1 my password 2 my pa- because it's so hard to remember so you don't need to change your password but what you do is you need to have a secure password in the article i linked to episode 193 of the Integral Mac podcast where we went over a number of secure password recipes and if you're not aware of these listen to the episode because you may find not only a way to make a better secure password but
2: one that's easier to remember There are some scenarios where you might need to change your password, even if you've got a really good, strong password. If you've ever... Reused that strong password on other sites beyond just, you know, for your Apple ID. That's kind of a potential problem because now, if that other service it gets involved in a data breach, now your password might potentially leak through that service as well. So, you want to make sure you're using a unique password for every service, including your Apple ID, especially again, given that Apple ID is tied to so many things, it's a really important account. So, you want to make sure you're using a strong and unique password for your Apple ID. And you probably only really need to change it then if you suspect that your password may have leaked somehow, which is probably not very likely to happen if you're pretty careful about how you sign into your Apple account. You're not doing it right in front of a security camera in public or uh, letting people like watch you as you're typing in your password and things like that. Oh, you might not know if there's a security camera over your shoulder well if you if you're going to type in your Apple ID in public, then my advice would be um you can you can kind of change position of of the the phone screen and kind of like you know turn your back in different directions a little bit as you're typing in the password and then if there is a security camera, they're not likely to be able to pick up the entire password okay One thing that you can only
1: do on the Apple ID website is create an app specific password. And we were discussing before the show, why can't you do this on your Mac or on your iOS device? And I think the reason is because if someone guesses your passcode and then they can create an app-specific password, they can get access to certain apps. Now, you you create an app-specific password if you're using a third-party app for email, contacts, calendars. And I think there are some other use cases. For In my case, I use Fantastical as my calendar app, and I have to have an app-specific password for it to be able to access my iCloud data. So... If it's email, you don't want it to be easy to create on a device that someone may have gotten into through the passcode. I've only ever had to do this for Fantastic but I don't use a third-party email app. So you can do this on your device by logging into appleid.apple.com in the browser, at which point you'll have to authenticate with your Apple ID and password. Another bit of information you get is all the devices that are signed into your Apple ID. And this is something that you can see on your iOS device that you can see on your Mac. If you go into settings on iOS, Apple ID, if you go to system preferences, Apple ID on the Mac. This is useful because you can see, is it backed up? you can if you're if you're trying to find it so i have a screenshot of my iphone next to find my iphone there's a link to open on icloud.com to open the web version of the find my you can see if it's a trusted device you can also see if it has apple pay and if it has cards associated with it, and you can remove the cards. And so this is really important. If you've lost your iPhone, for example, and you have no other device, you can go to appleid.apple.com on the web, in any browser, and you can remove
2: all of the cards
1: from that device.
2: This this can be really important because even though you normally have to authenticate using Face ID or Touch ID when you're using Apple Pay, it's also possible to put in a passcode. So if somebody has your device and they know your passcode, That could be a real problem. Okay, so I'll link to this in the show notes. It's a good
1: idea to just maybe bookmark this article or check out the Apple ID website so you know all of the things you can do. And just I like to remind people that this is one great Apple website. In case you forget the password for your Apple ID, you go to iforgot.apple.com.
0: Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com.